Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where, oh my God, news is breaking out all over today. I can't even keep up with it. Every time I turn around, there's something new and exciting going on in Washington and around the world. Uh, Speaking of exciting, we've got a fantastic guest today, Dr. Jonathan Fishbein, a whistleblower who blew the whistle on Dr. Fauci and ethical and safety issues inside the NIH's Infectious Disease uh, Division Institute, the one that Fauci has run since the late 1980s, is joining us. It's the first time I think he's ever done a podcast about how he blew the whistle, what he found out, and he has some strong words about Dr. Fauci's leadership of NIAID, that's the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Yes, the one that uh, Dr. Fauci runs, part of the NIH that's been the lead on AIDS, been lead on the pandemic, on coronavirus. He's got some amazing stories to tell about foster children, AIDS-infected mothers, and others who were disserved by the research uh, that Fauci did because there were either ethical problems or, worse yet, safety problems. And uh, uh, Dr. Jonathan Fishbein talks to us. This is an exclusive interview. I'm so excited. I wrote about a lot about Dr. Fishbein's um, uh, whistleblowing back in 2003, 4, and 5 when I worked for the Associated Press. There was a, Democrats and Republicans alike, from Charles Grassley to uh, John Conyers, a Democrat from Michigan, all raised concerns about what Dr. Fishbein had found. Fauci's team fired Dr. Fishbein for blowing the whistle. He then was reinstated later after an investigation concluded that his firing appeared to be retaliation and that most all of the concerns he raised about safety, ethics, compliance were, in fact, true. And you're going to get to hear from him firsthand. Uh, And also, we're going to have a a quick rundown of all that's happened on the Russia case right after this commercial break from our great advertisers and sponsors. So stay tuned. Dr. Jonathan Fishbein, the whistleblower, and a little touch of Chuck Grassley and Sally Yates and the newest developments on the Russia case right after this commercial break. History, economics, the great works of literature, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. Did you study these things in school? Probably not. Or even if you did, like I did, maybe it's time for a refresher. Time and technology have changed a lot of things, but they have not changed basic fundamental truths about the world and our place in it as America. That's why I'm so excited that Hillsdale College is offering more than 40 free online courses in the most important and enduring subject. You can learn about the works of C.S. Lewis, the stories in the book of Genesis, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution, the rise and fall of the Roman Republic, or the history of the ancient Christian church with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, you heard me, for free. You don't get anything free in the Biden economy today. I personally recommend you sign up for the American Citizenship and its decline. It's with my good friend, the great historian, Victor Davis Hanson. In this eight-lecture course, VDH, as I like to call them, explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. The course is self-paced so that you can start whenever and wherever. So start your free course, American Citizenship and Its Decline, with my good friend, Victor Davis Hanson, today. How do you do that? Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash justnews to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. And it's an easy URL to remember. All you got to do, go to hillsdale.edu slash justnews. One more time, hillsdale.edu slash justnews. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. As promised, we are going to have a big guest today, a real live whistleblower. That's the second big whistleblower we've had on the show in a few weeks. If you go back a couple of weeks ago, we had Doug Campbell, the undercover FBI operative who blew the whistle on the Russia uh, nuclear energy company, Rosatom, and things involving Uranium One, uh, kickbacks, uh, uh, money laundering, bribes, uh, extortion, uh, some pretty serious stuff. Uh, he blew the whistle there, helped the FBI develop a criminal case. Unfortunately, by the time the criminal case came out, the Obama administration had already given stuff away. Dr. Fishbein is uh, a whistleblower who in real time stopped research and and caused the NIH to look inward at safety failures and ethics failures that had been going on on, yes, Dr. Anthony Fauci's watch back all the way from the 1980s 
to 2005. You're going to want to hear from him. He hasn't spoken much and he hasn't been on the public radar for about 10, 15 years. But what he has to offer, I believe, will be eye-opening to you as you judge the work that Dr. Fauci, NIAID, NIH, and our other health policy professionals in the public sector have engaged in the last few years. Uh, before we get to that, I want to get to two developments yesterday. Everybody's talking about Sally Yates' testimony. Well, everybody except the network news, which didn't cover her bombshell admission. What was that? Well, Sally Yates, under questioning from Lindsey Graham, conceded that former FBI director James Comey went, I'm not using this word, this is her word and, and um, uh, Lindsey Graham's word, went rogue during the Flynn investigation, the Michael Flynn investigation. That She agreed that that's what happened, that he hadn't listened to the direction of the Justice Department, had not followed the regulations and rules, tried to hoodwink the new Trump White House and Mike Flynn in an interview when other procedures and policies should have been followed. He went rogue, she said. Now, most of the networks didn't cover that, but I think uh, we know how important that acknowledgement is. A Democrat, an Obama holdover, acknowledging a big part of the Russia investigation, the Flynn part, didn't follow the rules that the Trump White House was treated differently than the way Obama would have been treated if he was still in the White House in January of 2017 after the President Trump's inauguration. Important development there. Now, if this idea of going rogue, James James Comey going rogue, sounds familiar, it's because we've heard it before. Before Sally Yates said it, the Inspector General of the Justice Department, not once, not but twice, uh, confirmed that James Comey didn't follow the rules, didn't follow the procedures, unlawfully usurped power. So he went rogue. When did he go rogue? First time was on the Clinton email investigation, the Hillary Clinton classified email caper, when he, on his own, without consulting the Justice Department, without the authority as FBI director to do so, announced that there wouldn't be criminal charges against Hillary Clinton for her mishandling of classified emails on a non-secure private email server. We know all about that, but he went rogue there. And then a couple months later, after that report came out, the IG, Michael Horowitz, the same guy that found other problems in the Russia investigation, came out and said that James Comey broke the rules at the FBI when he stole his own memos that were FBI documents, took them with him, and then leaked one of them to the news media. The inspector general called that rogue behavior as well, saying he didn't have the right, no matter what his intentions were, he didn't have the right to do that. So Sally Yates follows uh, her claim of rogue behavior by the FBI under James Comey, follows a rich tradition. We now know why the president, President Trump, fired James Comey. It was he was a rogue actor who wouldn't uh, follow his own rules as the law of the land. And that's why yesterday's hearing was so important. Now, the second development yesterday you might not be as familiar with, but I think it's just as important. Senator Charles Grassi, one of the longest serving senators, he's been there since 1980, since Ronald Reagan came into office, the Republican from Iowa, a champion of whistleblowers, by the way, a key player in unraveling the uh, Russia collusion false narrative. Last night, he went to the Senate floor and he gave a resounding speech, an angry speech. He's upset. He accused the Democrats, specifically Senator Charles Schumer, the minority leader, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and Adam Schiff, the Intelligence Committee chairman in the House. He said that they were planting false stories about him and Senator Ron Johnson to try to derail their investigation of Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Ukraine, and conflicts of interest. Uh, and uh, Grassi laid out the tactics that were being used, the false leaks, the false innuendo and letters that were classified that then leaked, he said. But the most amazing thing he said, these tactics that these Democrats, and he's referring to Grassley, uh, to um, Schumer, Pelosi, and uh, Schiff, he said, I'm going to just read, this is an exact quote from it. This is the behavior of cowards. Let me read that again, in case you didn't hear it the first time. This is the behavior of cowards. Charles Grassley doesn't use sharp language very often. He's a very measured man, a very measured senator. He went out of his way to let it be known that these disinformation tactics, as he called them, that the Democrats are using, are wrong, cowardly, and they need to stop because the Senate, Ron Johnson, Charles Grassley, are investigating important issues surrounding a conflict of interest, the appearance of a conflict of interest involving Joe and Hunter Biden and their dealings in Ukraine. And the Democrats don't want it out. And according to Grassley, to keep it from coming out, 
they're engaging in an information disinformation warfare. He calls them on the carpet in a very forceful speech. It's worth taking a look at that. If you want to hear the latest on that, go to justthenews.com. I covered it last night with my good colleague, Susan Katz-Keating. It's an important story. Take the time to read it. What uh, Charles Grassley calls onto the carpet in that speech is what happened in the Ukraine investigation, the impeachment investigation where good people were smeared. It was what happened early on when Devin Nunes and other people were faced with hurled accusations that turned out to be blatantly false and misleading. Remember the ethics investigation that Devin Nunez had to undergo that he got cleared on. Turns out it wasn't true at all. Well, that's the sort of tactics that Charles Grassley, one of the most senior members of the Senate, calls into question, shames the Democrats, calls it the behavior of cowards. Check that out. All right. those are That brings you up to date on your Russia investigation scoops. What's going on there? Uh, important things that happened today real quickly. The attorney general in the, uh, New York State has uh, filed a lawsuit trying to dissolve the NRA, the Second Amendment group, the National Rifle Association, alleging insider dealing and fraud. And guess what? The NRA turned right around and sued the attorney general of New York, a Democrat. Expect that litigation to crazy ways for several days. And a close call today at the White House. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine was coming to visit President Trump. He got one of those COVID tests that are mandatory when you see the president. And he tested positive. He didn't know he was sick. Uh, a test probably put him ahead of in his treatment and protected the president from becoming exposed. So a piece of good news out of the White House that the coronavirus surveillance system designed to protect people in the White House, the, the vice president, the president, his top aides, it worked today. Governor DeWine was kept from meeting with the president because he tested positive for the coronavirus. Those are some of the big headlines working their way through justthenews.com right now. Stay up to date all the time. All right, we're going to go to that commercial break. Remember to support our great sponsors, our great advertisers who are making this show possible, making the work of Just the News possible. You're going to hear from some of them right now. And when we come back, Dr. Jonathan Fishbein, a real-life whistleblower who blew the whistle on none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci's infectious disease division, specifically on their early 2000s and 1990s AIDS research. Lives were put at stake. Safety issues were uncovered. Ethics conflicts were unmasked. Uh, This is the man who made it all happen. It was a bipartisan concern at the time. You should listen to it. He also has a little bit of theory about whether Dr. Fauci should still be in charge of the NAID. All that will be coming your way in a few seconds, right after the commercial break. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in Lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. Now, if your life is a bit stressful like mine and you want to lose weight, Add lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Now get 15% off and free shipping at takelean.com. That's takelean.com and enter the promo code justnews15. That's the promo code justnews15 at takelean.com. One more time, takelean.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, somebody I had the pleasure as an Associated Press investigative reporter about a decade and a half ago to work with for quite some time exposing wrongdoing under Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yes, long before COVID, there was, there was a history with uh, Dr. Fauci and his conduct at the uh, National Institutes for Allergies and um, Infectious Diseases. And so Dr. Jonathan Fishbein is joining us. He was a whistleblower. He was terminated by Fauci's team and then restored to his job because it was concluded that he had indeed found wrongdoing and that the culture inside uh, Fauci's organization resisted it and then retaliated uh, when they didn't like what Dr. Fishbein found on ethics and compliance. And so we're very grateful to have you here, Jonathan. Welcome aboard. Thank 
thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, and discuss this uh, these topics with you. I've had uh, uh, such a pleasure over my year uh, over the years of working as a reporter to to really deal with a lot of um, uh, whistleblowers. But your case, uh, first off, the, the the quality of information that you kept was so precise and so accurate. It was very easy for me as a reporter to find literally what was wrong inside the NIA, whether it was a conflict of interest or a safety problem. And uh, of all the whistleblowers I work with, I've said this many times, uh, that you, you were not only organized, but you just had the data. That You weren't guessing. You knew what you had. And um, it's remarkable. And I want, I want to thank you. I never got the chance to thank you back in 04 and 05. But. Well, my, 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 my pleasure. And, uh, you know, as I, I, I try to put that, episode of my life behind me as I've moved on with my my career and I've, I've sort of and recently as Dr. Fauci has in, been in the news constantly it all sort of starts to come back you know? <laughs> and and I started going through some of those things again and I'm just I'm as horrified I was as I was back then uh-huh. um and then I and then you know with Look, being retrospectively after so many years and, and reading, actually reading those articles, obviously, I, I saved the things that you wrote. And I, I really have to, to say how much I respect the fact you were very, very objective. Um, this was not, a, you know, an article, you know, to back me up. All right. They were things that, you know, I wasn't particularly, you know, enamored about that I may have done. And you and right. you, you mentioned there. Yeah. Um, but you just looked at both sides and you interviewed both sides and uh, you put things out objectively. And I, I think that carries over to, to what you do with just the news. So oh, thank you know, you. I, I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Well, we're going to, no, well, I appreciate that too. It was, it was an important time. Listen, medical research is <laughs> so important uh, and there are no bad guys in medical research in the sense that everybody who goes into it has their heart in trying to make people well and to help them overcome some of the worst things we see, whether it's COVID AIDS, but there were some really institutional problems mm-hmm. that you you uncovered that were uh, shocking to my own conscience. I'm pretty, um, I've been around a long time, so I don't get shocked very often. But I, I know my, I was and my bosses at the time at the AP were, our consciences were shocked by what we learned. And um, mm-hmm. what I'd like to do is first introduce you a little bit, because um, those who don't follow the medical profession every day don't know that there are people who specialize in the ethics and compliance part so that we ensure that when we do medical research on humans that we are doing the best safety practices the best ethics practices so talk a little bit about your training as a compliance and ethics officer because you were one of the uh, first ones ever brought into the aids division which is a subdivision of fauci's larger infectious disease uh, institute uh, you were the first, uh, if I remember correctly, you were the first uh, uh, oversight uh, yeah. and compliance officer, correct? Y- yeah. So we, they, they brought me in, and I uh, was the first director of the Office for Policy and Clinical Research Operations. And what that basically was that I, I oversaw our regulatory affairs, our, our drug management. Uh, but the, the, the main purpose was to make sure that the that the investigators who we funded, it was extramural research, which is the term for the NIH funding outside doctors from other medical institutions, um, make sure that the, that, the, um, that the extramural research was done according to federal regulations that protected human research subjects and that good clinical practice was adhered to. And good clinical practice is the maintenance of proper records, making sure that, that, that the rights of the, of the uh, patients are, are respected, uh, that there's transparency, there's confidentiality in regard to, to patients' uh, medical information. Um, um, all these things that are so essential to being, to, for quality research to be conducted. Yeah, and the key is we want people to be safe. We're testing drugs on them. We're trusting vaccines. And so safety becomes such an important part. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that was the first shocking part uh, when, when I really dug in. Uh, we're going to get to the ethical conflicts of interest mm-hmm. in these um, uh, royalties that some of Dr. Fauci and his, his assistants and, and uh, colleagues have gotten. But let's start with the safety part, because at, at the time you enter NIAID, uh, and you're in, in charge of the c- compliance and ethics for AIDS research, uh, which at that time was a multi-billion dollar enterprise. That's right. Um, 
what was going on in safety? There was a there was a trial going on in Africa, I, I think testing the drug Nevirapine. Now, very good intentions, right? We want to stop women in Africa who have HIV from transmitting uh, the, the virus to their uh, babies when they're born. And so we were testing the Verapine because that was the good intention. Mm-hmm. But tell us what you found in that, that uh, trial. Yeah. Okay. And yes, everything is done with good intentions. Sometimes um, um, <laughs> good intentions uh, pave the road to uh, trouble. Yeah, bad anyway. consequences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they had conducted a or it sponsored a study that was in uh, primarily in Uganda. Uh, in which they gave uh, nevirapine to uh, mothers to prevent maternal-to-child transmission. And um, the results from that study were heralded um, by the NIAID uh, in the Division of AIDS because it seemed that nevirapine was a very effective drug for preventing that transmission. Nevirapine is a drug that, uh, uh, antiretroviral that was that was uh, manufactured by a company called Beringer Ingelheim. And uh, so, so the fact that this seemed to be a very significant breakthrough in the fight against AIDS, um, the, the uh, NIAID recommended to the president, President Bush at the time, that, uh, that he um, provide billions, uh, millions of dollars, I'm sorry, millions of dollars of, of nevirapine to Africa uh, to, to halt the spread of the disease to, to infants. Um, so it was part of President Bush's major AIDS initiative. Uh, it also was research that convinced the South African government, right. despite the fact that they had not approved of the drug for this uh, indication, that um, they should start giving out the drug as well. So they kind of went around their approval process based on this research. Mm. Now, what happened was when an auditor went to see what was going on at the site, and that typically happens, um, he was basically horrified because he saw sloppy record keeping and um, uh, incidents of, of side effects that were, not, um, that were not reported to Division of AIDS and to, to the FDA, all sorts of things like that. And um, at the time, Baron Geringelheim was planning, actually submitted in a, a, a supplemental new drug application uh, for their labeling to be changed, that this drug also prevents maternal child transmission. And as a result of that audit, um, Baron Geringelheim got frightened and said, hey, we've got to withdraw our application from the, from the SDA. Wow. Now, from, the, from the standpoint of you being a perhaps a shareholder in, uh, in Baron Geringelheim, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's right? a negative consequence. That has significant business yeah. uh, implications when, a, when, a, when an application gets withdrawn because there's suspicion about the quality of the data. So that embarrassed the company um, and it embarrassed the, the, the Division of AIDS. Mm. And so what the division did, rightfully so, is like conduct a review. And they had a team of their experts in the Division of AIDS go through all every aspect of the study and try to understand what happened and is this actually salvageable? Um, are some of these issues um, minor? And uh, one of the significant parts of that review was that there was a medical officer who reviewed the medical part. She was assigned to do that. That's right. And when she did, when she did, she said, with what we have here, we can't make heads or tails about the safety. Wow. All right. And so all these different, um, these different reviewers um, uh, from the division submitted their reports. It was put into a larger report. And when the report was released, the medical officer's concerns had been totally removed. Wow. So and somebody did some crafty editing, was, right? Yeah. So... Hmm. Um, it has not been clear or, uh, you know, to, to, to this day, what exactly happened. We know that the division director changed the, you know, changed the, the, uh, the medical officer's assessment, um, which is uh, extremely unethical. Right. Um, and, and dangerous, know, right? Because I don't know patients who may are... have helped him with that. Right. Uh, I have my suspicions. 
Uh, it certainly was not written as if it came out of his hand, but um, there was something significant, something really political <laughs> that, that went on. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, they tried to salvage the study that way. And uh, um, I brought that to the attention of, of um, the people, the investigators who looked into my case. And, uh, and um, what eventually happened was that, and this is pretty unprecedented, the Institute of Medicine yes. was asked to do independent a review, review. Right. And, you know, that's a pretty big deal. So the Institute of Medicine appoints a whole bunch of reviewers to look over the data. But the people that they were appointed were all recipients of grants from the Division of AIDS. Unbelievable. Conflict of okay. interest. They have a financial big, interest in the outcome of the... conflict yeah. of interest. Exactly. A big conflict of interest because, what, are they going to bite the hand that feeds them? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, uh, a gentleman who was a great hero of mine and yours, um, Senator Grassley, right. who protects whistleblowers, right. um, even, you know, wrote to, to the Institute of Medicine and said, this is ridiculous. How, how can these people be objective? in looking at the data. Sure. The other thing that the Institute of Medicine did was they they reviewed the data as is, mm. all right? What, what was provided. They didn't look into the validity of the data. Scary. All right? So they just came to the same conclusions, I mean. Right. They tailored the results so it wouldn't look at they, the most serious ex problems. Exactly. Yeah. This is serious stuff. I want to just pause for a second so that people, so a lot of folks on my show, because we talk about Russia a lot since that was one of my reporting, this is what mm -hmm. you're talking about here, having this report rewritten, is very similar to what happened uh, with an FBI lawyer named Kevin Kleinsmith who rewrote a document, doctored a document to hide the fact that while the FBI was representing Carter Page, one of the figures in the Trump campaign in the Russia case, portraying him as a Russian stooge, in fact, the actual document showed he was a CIA asset who was helping the CIA spy on Russia. And so someone comes in and doctors a document. Now that has, you know, obviously horrific repercussions for the personal uh, reputation and privacy of Carter Page. And we do in this case, when you doctor a medical report, same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Document equivalent here. You're not just fooling some doctors and an oversight board. You're potentially putting the patients at risk because more people may continue to get this drug with these side effects and these medical conclusions now been hidden or changed. And so beyond just reputational consequence, there was a safety consequence here um, in, in the altering of this document. That's how serious this stuff was, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Same old methods. Yeah. You and know? a lot of people won't believe this, but Dr. Fauci has been in charge of that division for nearly 30, 40 years. Um, long before, I always say, isn't that isn't that longer than J. Edgar Hoover ran the FBI? It is. It, he, yeah, I think he's beaten J. Edgar Hoover for the first time. <laughs> That's a very good point. Well, let's um, let's point out before you got there, there was a 1992 study where two of the overseers, the uh, the people that were looking at the ethics and efficacy of the study, had financial conflicts of interest, and so going back to 1992. Dr. Fauci was strongly reprimanded by the Inspector General's office for an earlier study that had all the hallmarks of, of both safety failures and, more importantly, ethical oversight. We go 10, 15 years into the future. It's 2005. You get the same situation. You got IOM, Institute of Medicine people, doing an oversight study when they have a conflict of interest, a financial interest in the agency they're monitoring, and you got safety issues again. You're raising these to the top of the division. Tell me what Dr. Fauci did to address your concerns. Well, before I do that, I want to say in between 1992 and 2005, all right, there was the issue with the foster children. Yep. Yeah, that's the next one I want to and get you, to. You, you uncover that. We'll, we'll talk yeah, we're going to do that, that one next. Cause, but let's but, go back uh, what, to this. Just what this did Dr. Fauci do? Do Dr. Right. Fauci ran away. Dr. Fauci uh, could not... Uh, or would not address the issue, uh -huh. um, and uh, that that was unfortunate. Uh, yeah. That you have a leader who uh, can't do the right thing. The final, the final review that took a look at particularly at the issues related to the Nevarapine study in Africa uh, concluded that there were serious management deficiencies inside NIAID that allowed these problems to persist, even when someone skilled and hired to do that the ethics expert, the compliance expert, you 
brought them to the attention. There was a deafness, a willful deafness. That's what the uh, final investigation, an independent investigation, ultimately concluded that vindicated you. And I think it was that that um, finding that also um, uh, resulted in you being rehired and restored to your job after you had been wrongly retaliated against. But the, right. we now see 15 years of repeating pattern. And I want to now go back in a second. We're going to talk about a more jarring one. But before we do that, I just want to share something. I don't know if I ever told you this, uh, Dr. Fishbein, but when I was pursuing this and I was looking at two things, the, uh, the Neveropine women in Africa, poor, vulnerable population, trusting Americans to do the right thing by them in a medical experiment, wanting to protect their children. Uh, when I first started asking questions about this, the NIH management repeatedly would shame me saying how could you raise don't you know we save people's lives and don't you know we're doing good and i can't believe you would even think of writing about us and calling us on the carpet you're a horrible man john solomon and my answer is i literally they did this shaming thing from top to bottom mm -hmm. from fauci all the way down to the press people and I, they brought me in one day to go meet people at the nih and uh, uh, bethesda i think it was and and it was a it was a you should be ashamed of yourself. Some woman in Africa is going to give birth to a baby and they're going to have AIDS because of you. And the answer is no, no, they're not. No, they're not. All I'm asking is what about complying with the rules, the law, the ethics and safety? And I met this really resistant culture where they would turn the mission around on you and try to pretend the means uh, were not as important as the ends. Well, in science, mm -hmm. because people die, uh, the means are as important as the ends. Yes, we want to save as many people as we can, but we also don't want to put them in harm while we're testing these drugs. And you had, uh, before we go to foster children, there was a case in Tennessee where uh, they were applying nevirapine on the U.S. side. And there was a, a woman in um, Tennessee who had administered nevirapine repeatedly, even though she was developing liver failure. And they continued to do it, even though the warning signs were uh, clear. Uh, the fact that researchers were told, if you see liver problems, stop the drug because nevirapine is known in some cases to hurt one's liver. She died of liver failure. And when the NIAID people got the report, I don't know if you remember this, Jonathan, but uh, the, uh, the email was something of the effect of, I guess you can't do anything about stupid docs. That's how callous they were. They had killed a woman in a research project. Not much you can say about, not much you can do about dumb docs. Yeah, that was exactly the email. Boy, you've got a great memory. How about that? <laughs> I remember dumb was even spelled improperly. It was, yes, yes. It had the, <laughs> the uh, early text language misspelling of it. Uh, That's right. But think about that, the callous culture that their safety provisions had failed. A woman had died, and the best I could say was, um, I guess thing about dumb doc. And when I tried to dig in that for the longest time, the family did not know she died from the drug. They thought she had developed some complications related to AIDS. And I got to tell the family. I remember talking to the sister and mother mm -hmm. and got to tell your, your daughter and your sister didn't die because of AIDS. She died because of a clinical error uh, in a trial. And I remember how poignant that was. And, and that's what's at stake when people at NIAID under Dr. Fauci or NIH do these studies and they don't follow the rules. People die. People are maimed. Things happen. And that's why what, I, you, what yeah. you found was so and, important. Yeah. And, and, and I want to emphasize that, you know, there are errors and errors are made. They happen. There was a culture of bullying. Yeah. There was also a culture of sexual, sexual harassment that I brought to light. Yeah. You were a, a Me Too guy long before Me Too. You, you really did bring a lot to light in this uh, sexual yeah. harassment realm there. Yeah, exactly. But but if if you didn't stick to the party line, all right, you were you were out. You were you were thrown out. And yeah. uh, uh, and that's basically what they what they did to me. So um, stick with the team. Uh, consequences be damned on ethics and, and uh, safety. And that that's the culture. And I saw it personally because they were you know, they would they would try to spin my head every time I'd walk in or get on the phone call saying, how shameful you're going to risk someone's life. And the answer is no. You actually killed a woman in Tennessee in your study. You you had people in, in Africa that were uh, at risk and you didn't tell them and you tried to doctor the records and that became confirmed. So we've, we've talked about two vulnerable populations, the, the, the women in Africa trying to prevent their babies mm -hmm. from getting their HIV. Then this woman in uh, Tennessee that dies in the uh, Fauci led experiment. Now let's go to the foster children, which I think was the most, to me, it was Tuskegee with foster children. That was the most egregious. Yeah. Tell, why don't you tell Absolutely. folks, I mean, I read, well, wrote about I, this recently, but you you know this so well. And I, I Well, th this one you uncovered. Right. All right. <laughs> so you're probably in the best 
you're probably in in the best situation to to same culture that um um, so uh, I'm going to let you do that. Okay, I'll set it up and then I'll throw to you because I think you see in the in the foster children thing the, the exact same repetition going back to 92 mm-hmm. with the aid study that the IG Inspector General, the HHS, so strongly criticized. We've got the African uh, study, good intentions, bad, bad practicing by the researchers, and then a cover-up by Fauci's team. Then you've got a woman whose death was covered up, uh, in, uh, same drug, nevirapine AIDS, well, in the 80s and 90s, uh, there were these AIDS drugs, and uh, there were, it sometimes was difficult for, to get parental permission to test experimental drugs on children. Why? AIDS drugs have very toxic side effects. They're very good drugs. They save people's lives. But when you're experimenting them, they have bad side effects. And a lot of parents are like, I don't want my, my kids already HIV positive. I don't want them going through any more hardships. So they, they're having a hard time getting parents to enroll their children in these medical trials. And so Fauci and his team, the AIDS team and Fauci, went to the foster system in several um, cities. I think Pittsburgh and uh, the city of New York were two that I remember. And they convinced uh, these cities to, uh, uh, the wards, the people who were watching the foster children, to enroll their HIV-infected foster children in these studies so that they can get efficacy and safety data on them and do that. And what I uncovered was that the promise that Dr. Fauci and his team made to these foster children agencies is for every child that you allow to enroll in this, we're going to give them an advocate, a patient advocate, to watch their well-being like their parents because they're disconnected from their parents when you're a foster child. These, this patient advocate will watch the data, they'll be briefed, and they'll protect that child's personal and safety interests uh, as they go through this you know, very toxic drug trial. And it turns out that in almost all those cases, uh, the NIAID, Fauci's division, didn't provide that advocate after the fact. And what I dug up in records was there were 10 unexplained deaths of foster children in this trial. 10, not one, 10, very large number. And the ultimate investigation concluded that these were unexplained, mysterious deaths that were very troubling because of the fact that NIAID had not given them the protections of an advocate, somebody to watch out and be that that child's parent as these drugs were being administered to. So very much like the Tuskegee syphilis mm-hmm. uh, uh, experiment in the 40s, very much like what you saw in 92 and in the, in the Verapine trials in Africa and Tennessee. When that hit, you were still inside the NIH when I broke that story. Mm-hmm. Describe the culture and the reaction inside uh, Dr. Fauci's division when that, one, when that one landed and the public outcry began. Well, the official stance was, but we provided these children with life-saving drugs they otherwise yes. would not have had access to. Yes. That was the excuse. It meant a lot to the 10 that died, I'm sure. Yes, down, um, yes. And, but, but down sort of among the workers, you know, a lot of us were very concerned. It was embarrassing. Yeah. It was embarrassing um, because they, they, knew, they knew that's not what you do. That well, was absolutely reprehensible. I looked back and, you know, I left the AP a few years later, went to the Washington Post. And so I didn't mm-hmm. follow up. But in 2008, the chief ethics officers of the NIH. So the NIH is the parent organization. Fauci's division is one of the biggest and most expensive mm-hmm. of the divisions under NIH uh, fo- focused on infectious diseases. And in 2008, the two top ethicists in the NIH wrote an article saying, this was a fiasco, and going forward, it doesn't matter if your intentions are good. I'm sure glad you gave you know access to these uh, poor foster children to have drugs, but if you don't provide the patient advocates, you haven't done your job as a doctor, as a researcher, as an ethical human being, and uh, condemn the NIH and sort of put a final exclamation point on this. But that very culture that you, Dr. Fishmine, were exposing in these other things was endemic from 92 forward. The yeah, 80s, 90s, you have the uh, foster children, you have the nevirapine study, you've got uh, all these things. And it seems the only common thing was Dr. Fauci was in charge and there was an ethical blindness, a safety blindness in multiple repeated uh, drug trials. Um, everybody's going to want to know the big question, which is what do you think of Dr. Fauci today? Now, you left... Uh, the NIAID, what, in 2007? Is that correct? I, was, I left about 2009. Nine, okay, yeah. that's right. 2009. So you, yeah. You, and and after, after the big whistleblower blow up, uh, they let you do your job finally, right? You were able to finally start doing your job. Then. Well, I, de- I detailed to a, to a nonprofit. Okay. So I, I said, they got you out of Dodge. I was retained on the payroll, but I wasn't, right. <laughs> I couldn't step foot in the place. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, 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 um, 
you know, I, I worked at a detail. Um, so, so the question is, what do I think now? Right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to be, try to be very objective sure. and put aside my history with him, which is not a, not a good one. Okay. And pretend that didn't happen. And what do I, you know, what are my, what are my observations and my thoughts seeing what's going on? I think that, uh, he has made a lot of contradictory statements. Um, I would say the general public probably at this point kind of looks at it and says it's kind of very wishy-washy. I mean, didn't he say that the president didn't need to have a travel ban with China? Wait, he but then, then he said they should have a travel ban. And then he say, I remember he's saying that uh, we don't need to wear masks. And then he says, you got to wear masks. Uh, but I think the real, the, the real, the real... <laughs> statement that made my eyes roll was when he came out the other day and said new york handled the COVID situation correctly wow and i think new york was the was the the model for incompetence with all those positive patients being put back into into nursing homes and uh with potential exposure uh to, to vulnerable people vulnerable elderly so how he thinks that new york handled it correctly um i i don't know where that came from that that's just absolutely ridiculous Wow. Um, but uh, the thing is, it seems like he doesn't stick to facts. I think he is in front of the microphone a whole lot. He is doing so many interviews and he doesn't stick to the facts. So there was something about he thinks that uh, uh, shaking hands is going to be a thing of the past. Right. We shouldn't shake hands in the future. All right. Uh, he, he mixes opinion in there. And I don't think that that's particularly appropriate. It's, um... Um, you know, and, and, and look, <laughs> people, uh, the president is not an easy person to work, to work with. Right. Okay. Whether you like the president, you don't like the president, whatever. Okay. But when you were working for, he, he, he is, you, you work at the pleasure of the president and you stick to the way you know, to, to what the president says, you, you're consistent with the president. Okay. Whether you like it or not. Okay. You, you stay consistent and, you know, you can see the vice president is always that way. He doesn't stick in all this opinion. All right. He sticks to the facts and what, you know, the, 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 the policies and the, and the, and the pronouncements of the president and the, and the secretary of state does the same thing, but Fauci kind of veers off and says his, says his own things. And, you know, that that's, you would think after so many years in Washington, you know, you serve at the pleasure of the president, you stay consistent with the president. And uh, he doesn't particularly do that. Yeah, he seems to be his own island in a triangulation it, relationship it, it, with the president. There's no doubt about it. it. Exactly. But his and record I, of accuracy think, hasn't you know, been that good. I, I think he, I think he likes the attention and the adulation, frankly. Yeah. Um, um, even throwing out that, that first pitch perfect strike. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, there, there's certain, certain decorum that you have to maintain. And I think, you know, sitting in the stands at the baseball game without your mask was, uh, it was caught off guard there. Yeah. Um, interviewing in Vogue magazine by a swimming pool with when there are 50, 50 million Americans out of work. I just think that was kind of in poor taste. That's my, my opinion. Yeah. No, I think a lot of people shared that. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I yeah. don't, I've never doubted Dr. Fauci's intention that he got into medicine to help people. The question is, is he a good manager of one of the most important frontline health agencies? And I, I want to take you to two things. I want to go, most of what we talked about is his management of other people and failure to clean yeah. up things. We're going to get to something personally about him in a second, but before we get to that, um, the last pandemic was the AIDS pandemic. We, we spent a lot of time on it, a lot of billions of dollars. Many of Dr. Fauci's early predict predictions about AIDS transmission were wrong. They were alarmist. They turned out not to be true at all. But ultimately, we got you know uh, a better regimen of drugs for AIDS. And that, that pandemic has, while still significant and large across the world, there's certainly more hope for that pandemic long term than, than there was when, when we first learned about it in the 80s. But we knew in 2003 that coronavirus was going to become 
a potential threat. It leapt from animals, zoonotic animals, to humans in 2003 with the um, SARS, I think it is, and then MERS. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if we had those early warning signs in three and four and five, and then there were other SARS outbreaks in 10 and 11, I think, uh, was Fauci keeping his eye on the ball of um, uh, COVID or should we have been developing base vaccines? Should we have been developing and testing things like um, uh, remdesivir, which by the way, I think was originally founded in 2005. What, when you look back at it, the preparedness, was he ready for this pandemic that hit us in, in January? Well, well, preparedness involves a whole lot of things and not just whether you have a vaccine or not, but do you have enough masks? Do you have enough ventilators? Do you have enough, you know, um, personal protective equipment? All those things. Um, is he solely responsible for the fact that we weren't prepared? Absolutely not. I mean, but it's, it's his role as an advisor, particularly in his position and being the the you know, overseer the nation's infectious disease situation, he's the one who should be going to Congress and say, we need money for this, we need money for this, this is going to hit. He, he made a statement back in 2017 saying we were going to be hit with a pretty terrible pandemic sometime during the Trump administration. Um, and I don't, I don't see evidence that um, with that, with that uh, prediction that anything was done that would have put us in a, in a better state of preparedness. Yeah. Um, but, but, but ultimately, obviously, members of Congress, I mean, there are some who are, who are physicians, but they're not experts in infectious disease. Right. The president is not an expert in infectious of disease. Of course not. They rely on people like him to say, you got to put this way up on your agenda. Yeah. Right. You've got to, you've got to fund this because something bad is going to happen. And here's the evidence. Here's why I think so. And, um, as far as I know, that, that wasn't done because we're not, we didn't, uh, we weren't prepared for this. Obviously, yeah, and we were pretty flat footed. The implication, in you know, is far beyond the nation's health. It's our economic health right. that's been seriously impacted, yeah. much to his on his recommendations yeah. on how we should handle it. Yeah, there's no doubt. All right, so most of what we talked about today, Dr. Fishbein, is about his management of ethical and um, mm-hmm. other issues, safety issues particularly, sweeping things under the rug, punishing a whistleblower, uh, repeated safety violations, 92, 2003, 2005, foster children. We've got all these images. And people say, well, what about he himself personally? Did he ever engage himself in a conflict of interest? And one of the last stories I wrote in the series for the Associated Press, I uh, filed a FOIA and successfully won a FOIA showing that Dr. Fauci helped create a ingredient that was key to some of these AIDS drugs. It's called interleukin-2. And after he developed it with taxpayers' money, why don't you tell us what he did to make sure that he got a payoff from it? Well, you know, there was was a very, very large trial, one of the the largest AIDS trials that was uh, put together. And uh, the government put tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars into it. It was called a spree. Right. And a spree gave interleukin-2 to people who are HIV positive, who are also on antiretroviral drugs. And uh, so his, his product, uh, he, he, had the, he was a, a co-owner of the patent, was given to, these, uh, was given to, to thousands of patients internationally uh, in this study. Now, he was not personally involved in the study. There were extramural investigators that were, were running it. But again, it was with a, a product to which he was, the, uh, he was one of the co-owners of the patent. Um, so when I was um, in that role in the Office of Policy and Clinical Research Operations, the, the medical officer came to me, uh, who was overseeing the medical aspect of the trial. And he said, you know, I'm kind of concerned because we have emerging risks that are coming out of the trial. And this is pretty common in clinical trials, that as you see, as the trial goes on, adverse drug events and things, uh, you know, start to emerge. And so the proper procedure is that you obviously study those, but then you, you update what's referred to as the investigator brochure, which is a document that talks all about the drug, all about the risks, all about the, the benefits. And it's kind of used as a template that when, that when a patient is a consented for study, you go through it and you say, Mr. So-and-so, uh, let me just let you know that uh, we've had a thousand patients so far. 
and this is what's been reported, right? The, these adverse drug events have, have occurred. And so you need to be aware of that, that you know, in the, the spirit of transparency, uh, the need for transparency. So the investigator brochure for this study had not been updated for quite a, quite a long time. And the medical officer was concerned because uh, things were emerging and weren't, uh, and therefore the uh, subjects and those who were being consented to go with the study were not being informed of these things. So, uh, you know, I took note of that and not long after he came to me and he said, you know, I'm very concerned because we are starting to see an increase in patients who are suicidal or expressing suicidal ideation. And this concerns me a great deal. And we really need to update the investigator brochure. So I uh, gave that a lot of thought and, uh, and was appropriate for my role as I wrote to the principal investigator and I said, we are seeing a number of significant, uh, serious adverse drug events that are occurring. Uh, suicidal ideation, I think capillary leak was another one. Right. I, said, I'm, I, I need you within, I think it was 60 days, you must update the investigator brochure. And um, about a week later, I was fired. <laughs> and now, at that point, did you know? The same week that I, that I went to my to my supervisor who was the division director right. and said, you know, there's a problem in this department with bullying. There's a problem with sexual harassment right. and so on. So this all coincided all about the same week. Wow. Where I had been a perfect storm. To, uh, I had been uh, nominated for an award from Fauci. Right. I had been told that my performance uh, was, was excellent and that the investigators really appreciated the uh, support that I was giving them. And now you're all fired. Of a sudden, I didn't do anything right. Yeah. Classic, uh, classic retaliation of a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. In fact, the people who reviewed it said it was classic retaliation. Mm -hmm. um, but when you when you were when you were making these recommendations that there be the new warnings about interleukin, about suicidal mm -hmm. ideation, and capillary leak, did you know that Dr. Fauci was collecting royalties on the drug? Um, at that time, no, yeah. I didn't. So it was only when the FOIA came out, right? So they even kept that mm -hmm. from their ethics officer. So mm -hmm. let's step back just for a second and help our, our listeners understand what's going on here. Dr. Fauci develops a product called Interleukin-2 with taxpayers' money. He's the NH NIH guy. It's our money. He develops it. He puts his name on the patent. He's collecting royalties from the patent. And uh, the end users don't know of his financial interest in it. The ethics officer didn't know until I got the FOIA showing that he was collecting royalties on it. This is what we call a conflict of interest. And uh, disclosure, mitigation are supposed to be what the law requires. Instead, we swept it under the rug, and they tried to keep it under the rug by firing Dr. Fishbein. But Senator Grassley and others in Congress came to his uh, effort. He had a great lawyer, Steve Cohn, who was on the show a few weeks ago talking about National Whistleblower Day. And uh, the ultimately, Dr. Fishbein was restored to his job. But not after great consequences. And keep in mind, when they restored him to his job, they let him. Go, they didn't let him go back and keep an eye on that wayward AIDS division. They stuck him at a nonprofit so he couldn't cause him any more aggravation, so to speak. Um, and, and you know, and I want to go back to something I said before. Um, he could have done the right thing. He refused to meet with me. He kept his. Uh, he kept kept a distance from me. He wouldn't. I couldn't get through his executive officer to to talk to him. Uh, when we ended up having the the case, uh, we couldn't depose him. He's, wow. too, he's too busy a man yes. to give a deposition. Although he was giving interviews all the time on local radio shows. Of course he right? was. And and had he just addressed this with me and said, "Look, what's what's going on here? Um, let me look into this." All right, this guy didn't do anything wrong except bring this to my attention uh, and do what a what a what a proper leader should have done is getting to the bottom of it but right. rather it was get rid of the get rid of the uh, get rid of me and sweep it under the rug and uh, I guess that's where uh, that's what I, the most the most disappointing thing and and it's funny because I remember when I was hired and I had to have a meeting with him it was the only time I was ever in a room one-on-one -on -one with him and I sit down in his office and you know he's not a very tall man but he sits on a very high chair and I'm a very tall man and I was sitting on a very low chair. So I was actually looking up at him. <laughs> it was kind of funny. <laughs> that must've been uncomfortable. He, yes. It, it, it well, was a little intimidating, yeah. but um, he leans over to me and he says, you know, I want you to know if you 
you see anything funny, unusual, problematic, you come and you talk to me. Did that, and he didn't live up to that word yeah, he because didn't. he wouldn't. He wouldn't. And I, it's so funny because I remember it's 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 really like uh, uh, branded into my brain that moment where he was looking down on me. Yeah. And said that he kind of leaned forward and if you see anything wrong, you just come and you talk to me. Well, he didn't want you to be talking about his own drug interleukin and the uh, <laughs> suicidal right. ideation or the right. capillary leaks. Uh -huh. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of rhetoric, and then there's action. And the uh, what we showed, what the facts showed, irrefutably, mm -hmm. was that uh, mm -hmm. action wasn't taken. Rhetoric was was fine, but the action wasn't taken. And patients' yeah. lives are at risk. This is what we're at. Uh, mm -hmm. well, this isn't just some paperwork thing in an alphabet soup agency. When you're testing drugs and vaccines on people, you are uh, you have patients' lives on the line, and the best safety procedures, the best ethics procedures were not there on Dr. Fauci's watch. That is irrefutable. Why do we talk about this? Because just a few weeks ago, Dr. Fauci said, I think I should be trusted based on my record. And today, what we tried to give people was a little bit of that record, which you might not have heard about from the adoring, gloating media that writes about him most days. Dr. Fishbein, you've been so gracious with your time. I want to impose one last question on you, and it's sort of the big picture question. Okay. After all you saw on the inside, after all we know historically that predated you coming in, after all that's happened up to and including where we are today with the COVID treatment, uh, is America best served with Dr. Fauci in charge of NIAID, or would America be better if he left? Well, I, I think, again, putting my issues with him aside, I think running a, running a federal agency of that size and importance for 35 years you're about 80 years old with uh, no plans to retire. I think that's too long. And I don't think that does the nation any good. I'm, I'm not taking away from him his scientific accomplishments right. and many of the contributions that he's made. All right. But I just think that that's, that's a bit too long. And it's important that government bring in fresh perspectives, fresh ideas, younger people, um, you know, uh, and, and people don't get so entrenched. The bureaucracy doesn't get entrenched. Uh, for for decades, yeah. um, so I, I don't think he's he's doing them a favor. Um, so that's my that's my opinion. Is I I think I think we need to have some new perspectives, some new blood, new leadership, and yeah. new blood. Well, which, um, we're grateful. Which for leads me leads me leads me to to close the the program is is give you a quiz. <laughs> Turn the tables. I'm ready. Fire <laughs> away. Let's see if I can pass. Yes. Uh, do you know who invented the first polio vaccine that has led to us eradicating polio? Uh, Dr. Jonas. Um, I'm uh, gonna. I'm close. Uh, I can't think of his last name. Help us out. <laughs> well, I was hoping you were going to say Jonas Salk. That's who I was thinking of. Do you know the individual who led the global effort to eradicate smallpox? No, I should, but I don't. Okay, Donald Henderson. Wow. Do you know? Who hasn't? Who hasn't found the solution to COVID? Hasn't, in fact, hasn't found a solution to AIDS. Yeah. Hasn't wiped out any epidemic. I think it's true that the man at the top, the buck stops with him. So it's Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci. Yeah. I'm just amazed that he gets that that respect that nobody else. Gets. He he's only referred to as Dr. Fauci. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and and everybody else's last name, but he's Doctor Fauci. Yeah, no, he's uh, he clearly has a uh, a, a media <laughs> image that uh, uh, runs contrary to some of the stuff that we've talked about today, and I think that that's the, yeah, yeah. There's a well, gap I, between I, the per exactly. perception well, and well, reality. I think it, what it says is that the, you know the public is looking for a, for a medical hero to come yeah. in and rescue us from, we wanna, from this. We want to celebrate you know? our doctors. Exactly. Yeah. Well. In my new book, uh, Fallout, which actually talks about other whistleblowers, the dedication is to, we say, to the real whistleblowers who risk their careers, their lives, their reputations to come forward. And uh, when I wrote that, Dr. Fishbein, I certainly was thinking of you as one of the few people in my life that I met. What you went through in 04 and 05, the retaliation, the repudiation, the character assassination that the uh, Fauci team inflicted on you for a while was grave, and yet you stuck to your guns. And, and I think at the end of the day, America is better because you did. So on behalf of the American people, I thank want you. to say thank you. Sir, thank you very much. That's very kind of you.
All right. Well, we'll try to have you back on the show sometime soon. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day. And I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly. And it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook uh, uh, vegetable dinners, and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning, and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly, I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down, and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you 100% money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick. House Nutrition, and of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off. All right, folks, that wraps it up. What a day. We're so grateful to Dr. Fishbein for telling us the inside story, what it's like to be a whistleblower working under Dr. Anthony Fauci inside the Infectious Disease Institute of America, the, the America's leading edge of research in fighting pandemics from AIDS to coronavirus. Uh, I think you got a lot of insights from a real-life whistleblower. It's very seldom that a whistleblower is free to talk, to come out. In the case of Dr. Fishbein, he was fired unlawfully. He was restored because it was determined it was retaliation. And the ultimate reviews by the NIH, by the National Institutes of Health, concluded that his concerns were legitimate and uh, he was restored to his job. Some of the issues he brought up that were going on in the 1990s and 2000s uh, under Dr. Fauci's leadership, he fears is here today. And as you heard, he said it may be time for America to find a new infectious disease chief after 35 plus years. Maybe Dr. Fauci should let someone else run that agency. Important uh, perspective from one person, obviously somebody that went head to head with Dr. Fauci, but I think important. Now, I have some good news for you. We're going to do a special edition tomorrow, Friday, uh, heading into the weekend to give you some extra content to listen to when you're out on the beach or when you're mowing the lawn or when you're cleaning up the yard from that tropical storm. Um, Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch, the man whose lawsuits have brought to light many, many pieces of wrongdoing across government on Ukraine, Russia, health, uh, you name it, China. He's here to join us to talk about the most important lawsuits, what information we might get released before Election Day 2020 or even beyond. Uh, Tom Fitton will be joining us for a special edition today. And then on Monday, because we're on a roll with special editions, we're going to keep it going. Monday, before our normal Tuesday and Thursday podcast, we're going to have the new author, Mark Mag- Matt Margolis. He has an amazing book out about all the bad reporting that the media has done on the coronavirus scandal and how uh, coronavirus pandemic and how it has scandalized and misled the American public. We've all talked on this podcast about the media's bad job on Russia. Matt is going to lay it on the line and give you fact-based analysis of some of the worst reporting we've seen on coronavirus. Here's a hint. If you're at New York Times, you're not going to like this podcast Monday. We call out the New York Times. He does. Matt Magolis does in his book. I'm sure we're going to talk about that in other media malfeasance. Monday with the great author, the great new author, Matt Margolis, who writes about the media's new, news media's failures in covering the coronavirus and wrongly criticizing the president without the facts to do so. So two special newscasts coming up. Tell your friends, spread it around. Last week was the biggest week we've ever had for John Solomon Reports. I thank you for spreading the word, for listening loyally, for giving us ideas, for guests, for weighing in, for buying the book, Fallout. We're so, so grateful. 
Uh, if you go to jtnshop.com today, you can see all the books we have on sale. We got Matt's book, my book. We got new books coming out in the fall. Uh, thank you for being a part of the team here at Just the News and John Solomon Reports that are pursuing the truth, trying to help the American public get facts they can't get from the rest of the other media. We'll be back tomorrow with a special edition. Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch. Monday, Matt Margolis. Two special editions of John Solomon Reports just for you. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now.